Section 24 of The American Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The American Egypt by Channing Arnold and Frederick J. Tapper Frost. Section 24 Who were America's first architects? Part 2. At Palenque, again, there are the very peculiar temples of the cross and the foliated cross, which appear to have no parallels in other Mayan ruins. We suggest that here too is a Buddhist survival, namely that the crosses, it is more obvious in the foliated one, are crude representations of the sacred tree of Buddhism. The tree of wisdom, traditionally a pipo tree, beneath which Gautama attained Buddhahood, and which occurs again and again on the Borobudur friezes and in all the ancient Buddhist carvings, and around which figures are grouped in adoration, as are those in the Palenque reliefs. As the Palenque tablets suggest that the cross is the direct object of worship, it may be worthwhile here to mention that in the oldest Buddhist scriptures, Buddha himself is never represented directly, but always under a symbol, either the sacred footprints, Buddha paths, or the tree beneath which his meditations led him to divine knowledge. But the faces of the statues will take us a step further, for they seem to be representations of those human types peculiar to Cambodia, Siam, and the Malay Peninsula, as will be seen from the illustrations. They have the elongated, somewhat oblique eye of those peoples. They have not the American, but the Siamese nose. They are beardless. For this reason, some have declared them to be women. And they wear an oriental headdress such as is found in none of the admittedly Mayan ruins, and which we believe we have identified as the ancient Indian turban, shown clearly in the carvings at Barahat. But we must revert directly to the all-important evidences afforded by a study of Copan. Here, following up our argument that the peculiar characteristics of the invading builders would tend to weaken as they mixed more with the Indians, or as their lessons, perhaps after their deaths, were adapted to purely native ideas and designs. We find an illustration in point in Piedras Negras, a ruined city on the Usamacinta, discovered by Herr Tilbert Mahler. Here, some way from their first settlement, the distinctly oriental influence is on the wane, but it is still strong. A carving there unearthed by Herr Mahler is so reminiscent of Buddhist monuments that it must appeal to the most undiscerning. The figure of the seated god is, in truth, the best the sculptor could do from memory. Again, at Palenque, the influence of the East is fading still more from the work, yet is there some remaining. 
The figures have the characteristic features of the Americans, and the native headgear, but the attitude is the typical Buddhist one, and there is moreover one figure which takes us back to the purer Orientalism of Copan. The principal figure, says Stephens, sits cross-legged on a couch ornamented with two leopards' heads. The attitude is easy, the physiognomy the same as that of the other personages, the expression calm and benevolent. The headdress differs from most of the others at Palenque in that it wants the plume of feathers. Central America, Chiapas and Yucatan, Volume 2, page 318. In the Buddhist carvings, Buddha is often represented seated on a couch carved in the form of a tiger or lion, or really two, for the body is double-headed. This seat is spoken of in the Sanskrit as Simhasana, literally, the seat of lions, so called from the crouching animals, which, however, appear in all carvings as only two. Too much must not be made of this singular circumstance, perhaps, because such animal seats have been found at Persepolis, and again in the island of Cyprus, and the Greeks got the idea from Assyria. Stephens found one of these animal couches at Uxmal, but on this there was no figure. There may not be anything in the occurrence of these seats in America, but we think it at least suggestive. At Palenque, in the cross tablets, we have the chief figure standing on dwarf crouching human forms. At Tikal, northeast of Lake Peten, a carved wooden lintel discovered by Mr. Maudsley depicts two figures standing on two crouching bodies, which he believed to represent prisoners. Elsewhere in Mayan ruins, the design prevails. Now in the Indian, Cambodian, and Javanese ruins recur again and again these crouching figures, acting as footstools for the chief personages of the sculpture. Sometimes they are human, sometimes apes or demons. They are the equivalents, it is believed, of the Hindu Garudas, who took in Hindu myth many forms, and we suggest that the Mayan fondness for this queer design was another heritage from their architectural tutors. In our description of Palenque, we have mentioned one of the most curious of all reliefs, that representing, according to Stephens, women with children in their arms. The Oriental survivors would seem to be specially strong at Palenque, and it would not surprise us if in these women figures there is hidden a conjunct proof of the origin of America's first architects. In Buddhist art in India, Professor A. Grunwedel writes, At Sikri, Yusufzai, excavated by Major H. A. Dean in 1888, was found a statue of a woman accompanied by three children, one of which sits astride of her right hip in true Indian fashion, and which she is about to suckle. Among sculptures at Lahore Museum is a statue of a woman completely draped and holding on her left arm a child. It is suggested that these are forms of Haritri, mother of the demons. 
she was the mother of five hundred demons or yakshas, to feed whom she daily stole a child. Buddha rebuked and converted her. An image of her was found sitting in the porch or in a corner of the dining halls of Indian monasteries holding a babe in their arms. Why should not the Palenque figure be a representation of the Hindu goddess Haritri? A still more remarkable similarity is illustrated by a tower-like building at Yakchalan, into which is let at about the middle a huge human face. This queer edifice has probably replicas as yet undiscovered in the forests of Guatemala. If it could be shown to have a counterpart in the Malay Peninsula, that would be a connecting link between the two civilizations which would need some explaining away, would it not? Well, we have traced such a counterpart just where it ought to occur, if our theory is to hold good, that is, in the forests of Cambodia. At Angkor, there are several such structures built of large blocks of hewn stone. Of these extraordinary towers, M. L. Punero in Durunes de Angkor, Paris, 1890, gives some excellent photographs. It would need a bold man to say that the fact of these Cambodian towers having such a striking replica at a spot near the earliest settlements of her supposititious oriental architects is due to coincidence. Then there are the curious figures carved on the walls of the nunnery at both Chichen and Ushmal and other Mayan ruins. They sit cross-legged in Buddhistic fashion in niches in the walls, surrounded by an oval-shaped ornamentation. These are like the images in the niches of the temples of all great Buddhist buildings. The oval-shaped ornamentation may easily be it really looks exactly like the aureole which invariably surrounds the figure of the Buddha at Borobudur and elsewhere. Moreover, these figures in Yucatan have a nimbus too, just like the Buddha's. We are not, of course, endeavoring to show that the Yucatecan figures represent Buddhas, but we are suggesting that the oriental pattern and designs for religious statuary had sunk deep into the Mayan mind. Though the sculptures of the two civilizations are not, as has been said, strikingly alike in detail, they are similar in subjects. They represent, for the most part, when not strictly religious, processions, battle scenes, and pictures of the daily life of the people. There are, too, base reliefs showing the conquered submitting to the conqueror, the details being much like those of the famous carving on the rock at Behistun. There is not much in such similarities, as the carvings of any race would tend to be stereotyped in a common form. Where valuable evidence would be looked for is in the fields of religion and mythology. So far, wherever we have been able to show similarities between the architectures of America and the East, Buddhism has been the prevailing religion of the part of the latter in question. Do we then find any likeness between the religion of the Mayans and Buddhism? In entering upon this part of our inquiry, 
we must remember that the religion of a mere handful of invaders, as we must presume the Oriental builders to have been, would not appeal to the natives so much as would their arts. When you have admitted the conservative tendencies of all peoples in matters religious, it gives an added weight to any genuine parallels which are traceable between two religions in such an argument as the present. We believe we can show such genuine parallels, but first we must refer once more to the suggestion that the elephant was sacred to the Mayans. We have shown that no reliance can be placed on the zoological deductions made from the so-called elephant trunk ornaments on the Mayan buildings. But on the general question, the fact that the elephant has apparently never been indigenous to America would seem to settle the matter. No race has ever been shown to have worshipped an animal they have never actually seen. Some writers have tried to prove that the elephant or its congener, the mammoth, existed in America contemporaneously with man. Professor Newberry, in an article, The Ancient Lakes of Western America, U.S. Geological Survey Report, Washington, 1871, writes, The elephant and Macedon continued to inhabit the interior of our continent long after the glaciers had retreated beyond the upper lakes, and when the minutest details of surface topography were the same as now. It is even claimed, here as on the European continent, that man was a contemporary of the mammoth, and that here, as there, he contributed largely to its final extinction. For this view, there would seem little real evidence. The so-called elephant figures dug up during the excavation of mounds in Wisconsin and Iowa in 1880, although declared by their finders to be miniature representations of elephants, have no tusks and are far more like the tapir of Central America. This is the American animal nearest approaching in form, the elephant of Asia. That the tapir was worshipped by the Mayans there is no doubt ample proof exists. It is certainly possible enough that this was an indigenous cult, and cannot be held to be reminiscent of an earlier worship of the elephant. What would seem to militate against such an explanation is the nature of the tapir. Animal worship undoubtedly arose in the majority of cases from one of two motives. Fear or gratitude for utility. The former motive is illustrated in the adoration of the larger carnivora, while the worship of the whale, the horse, and the cow are examples of the latter. But the tapir is neither feared, he is very shy, has no tusks or other means of offense, and lives entirely in the swampy woods, never willingly meeting man nor is he of the least use, though it is possible his flesh has on occasions been eaten. With this, we will finally leave the elephant cult question, with the suggestion that the tapir, being the nearest approach to the elephant in the New World, may have been adopted as its successor by the invaders, and afterwards became a deity of the Mayans.
Now let us see what are the parallels between Buddhism and the Mayan religion, whether in legend, doctrine, or ritual. The Buddhist priests lived during certain parts of the year in monasteries. They had no food but what they received from the people, were not allowed to marry, fasted on certain days, and spent their time in meditation, writing up their religious records, and teaching the people. This is almost a precise life led by the Mayan priests. They lived apart from the people in separate houses, and most noteworthy of all, Acosta in his Historia de los Indios says that they lived entirely by begging, or rather from the voluntary contributions of the people. Of the Buddhist monks, Sermonier Williams in his Buddhism, page 312, describing their daily life, writes, Arranging themselves in line, they set out with the abbot at their head to receive their food. Silently, they move on through the streets, fixing their eyes steadily on the ground, six feet before them, meditating on the vanity and mutability of things, and only halting when a layman emerges from some door to pour his contribution of rice or fruit or vegetable into their alms bowls. The Mayan priests were not only bound to celibacy, but they were never allowed to come into contact with women. This was the Buddhist rule, though slowly to be much relaxed. Sermonier Williams, page 152, says, There is evidence that among certain monkish communities in northern countries, the law against marriage was soon relaxed. It is well known that at the present day, the Masaries in Sikkim and Tibet swarm with children of monks, though called their nephews and nieces. A further curious parallel is that women took part in the ritual of both Mayans and Buddhists. Gautama had an early order by which women were admitted to nunneries, under the same rules as men. Among the Mayans, women were ministrants in the temples, as at Isla de Mujeres, while at Chichen, Uxmal, and other cities, there were large nuns' houses. Sir Manier Williams, on page 83, says, The eating at midday, the one meal and at no other time, was the customs of the Buddhist priests, and they fasted on prescribed days. H. Bancroft, in his Native Races of the Pacific States, 1875-1876, to New York, says that among the priests of Mexico, Fasting was observed as an atonement for sin, as well as a preparation for solemn festivals. An ordinary fast consisted of abstaining from meat for a period of one to ten days, and taking one meal at noon, and at no other hour could so much as a drop of water be touched. Sermonier Williams, page 313, says, When the midday meal is over, all return to work. Some undertake the teaching of the boy scholars. Others read the texts of the Tripitaka with their commentaries, or superintend the writers who are copying manuscripts. Some of the older members sink into deep meditation 
Father Torquemada, a leading historian of Mexico, tells us that the priests passed much of their time in contemplation and in writing the annals of the country. It may be here worth mention that the Zapotecan, Mayan, priests obtained their inspiration by a species of auto-suggestion terminating in an ecstatic trance. This would certainly seem to be a parallel to the Buddhist trance. Sir M. Williams, on page 506, says, Everywhere throughout the Buddhist countries, the supposed impressions of the Buddha's feet were as much honored as those of the god Vishnu by Vaishnavas. No true Vaishnava will leave his house in the morning without marking his head with the symbol of Vishnu's feet. The Jains worship the footprint on Mount Parasnath in Bengal, while there are sacred footprints of Buddha at Barahat, Sanchi, Amaravati, and the famous Adam's Peak in Ceylon and Frabat in Siam. The latter two supposed to represent the right and left feet respectively, as he stepped in one stride from Ceylon to Siam. Now, it is a very strange fact that there is this legend of sacred footprints in America, and more curiously still, the legend associates itself with the East. In his Hero Myths, page 220, D.G. Brinton says, speaking of the arts of the Muikas of New Granada, the knowledge of these various arts they attributed to the instruction of a wise stranger who dwelt among them many cycles before the arrival of the Spaniards. He came from the east. In the province of Ubaque, his footprints on the solid rock were reverently pointed out long after the conquest. A second footprint was found by Dupage at Zachila, the ancient capital of the Zapotecs, a Mayan tribe while a third, which Brinton examined in Nicaragua, an account of which is given in his The Ancient Footprint in Nicaragua, was simply the footprint of an ordinary man impressed on volcanic rock before the lava hardened. Brinton points out that the foot which made the mark was sandaled, showing that it was done by a native, but that these legendary marks had very commonplace origins does not affect the curious community of legend which thus appears to have existed between Central America and Buddhist lands. Many minor habits and customs might be cited to show how strangely alike the minds were, and still are, to some Buddhist peoples. Thus, all Mayan mothers carry their babies sitting astraddle of their hips, though other American Indian women carry the little ones Apache fashion in a cradleboard, or in a bundle like the Mexican Aztecs, slung on their backs, and this carrying on the hip, peculiar to the Mayans, is the invariable manner of carrying the child in India, Burma, and Siam today. Another point is that the manuscripts in both countries are folded peculiarly, namely in a zigzag way. Dr. Brinton says in his Mayan Chronicles, 1882, The Maya MSS consisted of one long sheet of a kind of paper made by macerating and beating together 
the leaves of the magui, and afterwards sizing the surface with a durable white varnish. The sheet was folded like a screen, for example zigzag, forming pages about nine by five inches. Both sides were covered with figures and characters painted in various brilliant colors. On the outer pages, boards were fastened for protection. This might be an account of the Buddhist olas, as they exist today, and as doubtless they have always existed. Again, the system of castes, peculiar to the East and unknown to the North American Red Indians, existed among the Mayans, as we have described in Chapter 14. The ancient Mayans, too, had two languages, one for use in addressing superiors and one for inferiors, and this was the case in Cambodia and Java. Many minutest customs of the two peoples show parallels which are hard to explain except as the result of intercourse. Thus baby girls in Java wore a string around the waist, from which hung a shell, the removal of which, during maidenhood, and until the marriage night, was regarded as sinful. This had its exact replica among the Mayans, whose girl children often still wear the shell. The Mayan carvings of priests' figures always show a carved medallion of jade or stone worn hanging by a chain round the neck. Almost without exception, this badge-like ornament hangs round the neck of the ancient Buddhist figures sculptured in the east, and is said to be still worn by the priests in Siam and Burma today. In the east, as in Mexico, the points of the compass were represented by colors, though it is not proved they followed the same sequence. In Buddhist countries, a piece of green jade is sometimes buried with the dead, and this has been proved to have been a Mayan custom, the stone being thought to have magic properties in speeding the deceased to another world. Such minute similarity of custom and belief is shown by these examples cannot be mere coincidence. Taken separately, there is not one that would prove the affinity between the East and America, but when taken together, they certainly form striking evidence. But there is one thing yet lacking, a missing link in the chain of evidence binding together the Buddhist East and tropical America. Professor E. Morse, in his paper, Was Middle America Peopled from Asia, has justly pointed out that, to go straight across the ocean, Pacific, is one matter, but to go from latitude 30 degrees on one side of the Pacific, almost to the Arctic Ocean, and down on the other side, nearly to the equator, is quite another exploit. Most truly said, for such a voyage is possible, but most improbable. Those who would have us believe that Middle America was peopled from Asia have agreed in assuming that it was via the Bering Straits or the Aleutian Islands. We agree with Professor E. Morse, if we have read his pamphlet correctly, that if some means of getting eastern invaders across the Pacific and not round it were shown, it would go far to prove 
the Asiatic origin of Central American civilization. The Japan current, Kurosiwa, has been the route accepted by all who believe that Central American civilization hails from Japan and China. It runs swiftly along the coast of China and Japan towards the Bering Straits, and there bifurcates, one part running into the Arctic Ocean and the other turning down and running parallel to the coast of America. This current has proved irresistibly attractive, for it is certain that those swept on by it would have land in sight the whole way, and Charles Wadcott Brooks has shown in his report to the California Academy of Science on the Japanese vessels wrecked in the North Pacific Ocean that ships from Asia could easily reach the Oregon and Californian coasts by drifting, as he has proved in the case of several derelicts. This Japan current is such a simple solution of the thorny transit problem for those who favor the Asiatic theory, that they have all agreed to adopt it, and have never been able to tear themselves away from it for a moment and look elsewhere. What if there were other currents? What if there was a direct current communication between the Malaysian portion of Asia and Central America? We take no credit for discovering currents. We have simply looked to see whether, if our theory is otherwise good, the invading architects would have an advantage of a current in their long voyage. And we have found one. The prevailing winds blow six months of the year west to east, and the currents would seem at first to be coast currents. But all are not so. There is the great equatorial current rising on the Peruvian coast, where it is known as the Peru Current, between south latitude 30 degrees and 40 degrees. For a time, it keeps by the coast, running on a north-northwest direction, until it reaches the equator, where it turns and runs in an almost direct line across the Pacific between the equator and 10 degrees south latitude. This powerful current will not, of course, serve the purpose of our argument, as it goes in the wrong direction. But there is another current known as the countercurrent, running north of the equator east to west. It is first noticeable among the many small island currents in the Indian archipelago, and then takes a course to the east-southeast of Borneo and south of the Philippines and out into the Pacific. On its course it runs through the Caroline Islands and the Marshall Group. At between 160 degrees and 170 degrees longitude west Greenwich, it is reinforced by a branch of the southern equatorial current which runs swiftly through Christmas and Fanning Islands and turns on a backward course. On an average, its rate for the whole distance is about two knots per hour, or nearly as fast as the Japan current. It spends itself on the coast of Central America between the equator and 10 degrees north latitude, part of it turning south, until it is swallowed up again by the equatorial currents, the other half turning north and eventually merging into the Mexican current, coming down from the north. This current fulfills all the requirements of our argument. It would naturally land emigrants from Malaysia on the coast of Central America 
between 10 degrees and 14 degrees north latitude. The most ambitious of sea migrations in early times are perhaps those of the Polynesians. Starting, it is assumed from their own traditions, from Samoa, their present distribution over the southern Pacific shows that they did not hesitate to make immense sea journeys under circumstances which to our modern minds seem almost impossible. For the Polynesians had no boats but the open canoe or dugout still used by the islanders today. These Polynesian migrations are facts, not theory, and thus we can come to reflect upon the problem of a migration from, say, Java to Central America. We begin to see how really practical it all is. For the ships in the east were not dugouts, but were actually built of planks. The Chinese traded with India and the Malaysian islands during the 5th and 6th centuries, and used decked boats for the trade. They knew of the compass from the earliest times, and actually used it for navigation from the 3rd and 4th centuries onward. From them the peoples of India and Malaysia learned shipbuilding, if they had not already developed it. Thus our migrating architects would, in all probability, have quite decent-sized vessels in which they could make the voyage to America. But it may be asked, what impulse to migration these peoples could have had. If our dates are accurate, the case is a fairly clear one. Buddhism started, as everyone knows, in India. During the 4th and 5th centuries, the persecution of the Buddhists began, and ended finally in their being driven out of India. As an early result of the movement, which was bringing about their expulsion, they established themselves in Burma. Buddhism was acknowledged in China as the third religion of the empire as early as 65 AD. The religion spread into the Indian archipelago soon after it reached Burma and the Malay Peninsula, and the building of the Buddhist temple at Borobudur in Java was begun between 600 and 700 AD, though Owing to wars and invasions, it was not finished until about 1430. But the course of Buddhism did not run smooth in Java. The Buddhist settlers were involved in wars with neighboring Malay peoples, and the building of the great temple was, it is certain, much interrupted. The disturbed condition of their tenure would tend to drive some of the settlers into fresh migration. Probably about the 8th century, a band of these undertook a voyage in search of a new home. There is ample evidence to show that the disturbed state of Malaysia was such at this time as to cause constant kaleidoscopic changes of population. On the mainland in Cambodia, Angkor Vat, which, as we have shown, resembles the ruins of Central America, was probably at that time inhabited. The Khmers, who built it, have never been properly traced. They were possibly swallowed up in the great racial cataclysm which was then taking place thereabouts. 
some of them may have been driven into the islands and were possibly the designers of Borobudur. Perhaps the band of immigrants who reached America were Khmers. But this, of course, must remain mere surmise. Our theory involves the assumption that some Eastern people, professing Buddhism, and skilled in the type of architecture associated with early Buddhist buildings, did reach Central America. We have tried to show that such a voyage was possible, and now let us follow the route. Taking Java as their starting point, we have shown how the currents crossed the Pacific to the Caroline Islands. This group, lying directly in the course of a migrating people, would be certain to be a resting place on their journey. They might perhaps stay some weeks, perhaps months there, possibly leaving some of their number behind them when they finally started out again. Here then, one would expect to find some trace of their culture, and that is exactly what we do find. There are architectural remains in the Carolines, though these have never yet been properly studied. But there is evidence that there are such relics as we should expect of the men who were to be the tutors of the Mayans. F. W. Christian, in his book The Caroline Islands, London, 1899, says on page 80, speaking of the ruins on the east coast of Ponape, somewhat similar in character would be the semi-Indian ruins of Java and the Cyclopean structures of Ake and Chichen Iza in Yucatan. A series of huge rude steps brings us into a spacious courtyard strewn with fragments of fallen pillars, encircling a second terraced enclosure with a projecting frieze or cornice of somewhat Japanese type. The tradition of the Ponapians in regard to these ruins is, Mr. Christian tells us, Two brothers, Annie Aramak, godmen of heroes, named Olochipa and Olotropa, coming from the direction of Chokach, built the breakwater of Nan Mulochai and the island city it shuts in. By their magic spells, one by one, the great masses of stone flew through the air like birds, settling down into their appointed place. From the photographs reproduced by Mr. Christian, it would seem that the ruins were distinctive of no special type of architecture, but were such as one would expect to be put up by those who had only made the island their home for a very short period, or, as is far more likely, did not even stop to build but imparted a slight knowledge to the natives, whose subsequent productions would be thus uncouth. Their next halting place would be the Marshall Islands, but whether there are any ruins there we do not know. It is almost next to certain that intelligent search would reveal such. The distance between Java and the coast of Central America, at the point which we wish to indicate as the likely landing place, is about 9,000 miles. The Caroline Islands are about 700 miles from the southeast corner of the Philippines the last sight of land a people migrating from Java by the route we adopt would get. The Carolines would be in their route for 1,500 miles, 
as this archipelago is a specially widespread one. From the Carolines to the Marshall Islands is about 450 miles, and then onto the American coast is about 6,000 miles, with the smaller unnamed islands lying north of Christmas Island between longitude 160 degrees and 175 degrees west of Greenwich, intervening for about 1,000 miles of their course. Between this point and the American coast would be the longest stretch of open sea the migrators would have to face. We do not suggest they would come over in great numbers. They followed the course of the currents to America, and would be thrown on the coast where it struck in its greatest force. The Pacific countercurrent turns off into two branches on nearing the coast at about 10 degrees north latitude, part going to the south and part north. If they took the southern branch, they would come in contact with the equatorial current coming up from Peru and inevitably be carried out to sea again. On the other hand, if they took the northern branch, they would be carried for some miles along the coast until about latitude 13 degrees, where the current runs in closest, and there would be the most probable spot for them to land. End of section 24. Recording by Jairus Amar.